name is Catherine Can, and you're listening to the American Geographical Society podcast. This is episode one, Mapping in the Time of COVID-19. We've all been able to watch the COVID-19 pandemic spread across the globe with unprecedented precision. As initial cases developed in Wuhan, we saw maps and interactive dashboards spring to life on popular media, beginning to illustrate the disease and track the spread as cases and deaths continue to grow. While many of us feel we are experiencing information overload related to the disease, the ability to visualize the spread is relatively novel and should not be taken for granted. COVID-19 is the first pandemic where geospatial technology has been advanced enough to track the disease in real time using satellite imagery, cell phone data, and crowdsourcing. We've gathered today AGS President, Dr. Marie Price, AGS Chairman, Dr. Christopher Tucker, and AGS Counselor, Dr. Joshua Campbell to discuss the role of geospatial technology and data during this pandemic. Welcome all, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. So Marie, I wanna start with you. You've been a practicing geographer for over 30 years. Have you ever seen the role of geospatial analysis so central in the times of a global crisis? You know, mapping has always been important in times of crises, but what we're witnessing now is a global demonstration of the power of geospatial tools to combat this virus in ways that were unthinkable even a decade ago. Um, These real-time updates uh, that involve collaborations with individuals, organizations, universities, various software companies are really transformative. And I want to say that as geographers, the interest in disease, mapping, and getting public information out goes back to the mid-19th century when the American Geographical Society was founded. Probably the most famous map linking disease and mapping was John Snow's, not the John Snow you're thinking of uh, from Game of Thrones, but Reverend John Snow, who mapped cholera in London in August 1854. At that time, everyone thought disease was caused by bad airs, but John thought it's caused by bad water. And what he did is in a neighborhood, he mapped where the deaths were occurring and saw this concentrated area near a well, which actually was a contaminated well. And when they closed the well, the rates of cholera went down. And within a couple of years, this idea that water contaminated spread cholera was accepted. So as geographers and the American Geographical Society, we have been looking at the relationship between showing and visualizing disease through maps for a long time. We did many maps after the last major pandemic of 1918-19, Um, We even had a medical division in the 1950s that mapped various diseases from polio um, to schistosomiasis. But um, what is different today is that those maps were static. They were paper maps. They were collected and worked on over months and years by uh, small teams. And they were distributed at health organizations, but they didn't have the immediate access um, that anybody with the internet has today. And you know, most people have spent some time looking at the map when they've tried to understand COVID-19 and its global impact. 
Exactly. The outbreak really has turned to spotlight on our field. You can't turn anywhere without seeing a map. At AGS, we've been amassing a collection of useful dashboards to track the geographic spread of the virus. And we've included a list of these resources for any listener who wants to review them on our website. Geographers and geospatial analysts have mobilized and continue innovating to illustrate the spread and provide policymakers with the data they need to protect the public from COVID-19. Today, I want to discuss five of the most impactful geospatial tools and data collection methods we've been seeing during this time of pandemic. Dashboards, satellite imagery, telemetry data, the internet of things, and crowdsourcing. Dashboards have been perhaps the most prevalent instance of maps we've been seeing in the media. Josh, why don't you walk us through what a successful dashboard looks like and tell us some of the best examples that you've seen. Thanks. Yeah. Well, before launching into the specific examples, I think it's important to kind of think about what is the purpose of a dashboard and think about what are the what are the ways to measure the utility of a dashboard. Now, in theory, you know, these things should not just exist just to exist. They exist to uh, make life easier. It's designed to find relevant information faster, to be able to use the power of visualization to synthesize it and understand the problem, and hopefully to make better decisions from that data. Um, and so when you look at any given dashboard, the first thing to, particularly ones in modern web technologies, which can, can really have beautiful looking user interfaces, it still boils down to the data. And so where is the data coming from is a critical question to ask. Um, and then if you're, once, you, once you have the data, the question is, well, how are you using visualization to make it more understandable? So when you bring maps and charts and graphs uh, to bear on the problem, um, is that making is is the data being represented in the best vehicle possible to to make it more understandable? And when you bring maps, particularly into the into the equation, that opens up a whole lot of cartographic issues. And with the proliferation of technology, it's a lot easier for anybody to make a map these days. And and the art of cartography can sometimes get lost. Uh, the other thing that over you know, as Marie mentioned, you know, over the last ten years, our ability to respond to these kinds of things has changed dramatically in terms of the tools and the information flows. It used to be that there wasn't, it was so difficult to get any information that portals and dashboards became this beautiful thing where it allowed the best data to be bubbled up and to be aggregated in a single place to go. But now with this proliferation of all this technology, we're now back to the point where it's almost too much signal and not enough noise. And so you've got to ask the question, is there, what is the utility of this particular dashboard? Um, and so some of the things that we've looked at, you know, again, what are the data sources behind it? What's that level of interactivity that the user expects? And what are you getting? Um, is it showing change over time? Or how is it showing change over time? And how are the cartographic elements being represented in terms of, you know, we can talk about the, the nerdy elements of map projection and, and cartographic rendering. Um, I'm going to start with where I think, you know, from a government agency perspective, what this is what we expect the government to be able to do is provide some authoritative voice. And so if you go to the CDC portal, what you'll find is a, is a pretty reasonable looking website, but it's mapping tools are not as sophisticated as you'll see in other places. And I think there's good reasons for that in terms of um, trying to fulfill uh, re legal requirements under Americans with Disabilities Act and what's called Section 508 and that compliance to make sure that all the websites can be readable by screen readers. What that ends up doing is it reduces some of the more sophisticated interactivity that we've come to expect over the web. And so the CDC's mapping tools are actually not um, very sophisticated. But what in the, the reportings at the state level um, and, and it's just 
course, but what they do do very well is bundle up where they got all that data and provide you uh, quick links to get down to the source data. And I think that's a, almost where we want the government to be is in the data providers and let other folks kind of come in and build these shells and dashboards over the top of it. And it's worth noting that uh, several of the dashboards, especially the CDC and uh, World Health Organization, are using uh, ESRI software as their foundation. That's a great point, Marie. We've been seeing that everywhere. And Chris, I want to turn to you. You'd been talking about some other dashboards that have the ability to drill down a bit more. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like the Johns Hopkins portal, if you go to that dashboard, um, you know, they actually provide the drill down. It starts global, but then when you want to uh, go to the United States and you drill down, it gets you all those reports at the county level. <clears throat> and so they don't have you know, that ADA um, kind of limitation on how they design it. They're able to just go forward in the, the way they think can deliver that data, um, but in the best possible way. But it's got shortfalls also in terms of the tech that they're using with how the level of interactivity when you roll over each of the dots on the map data doesn't come up right because of the technical choices they made and there's also no notion of change over time so i can't see the data or the uh, uh pandemic first hitting washington state and then moving to uh, new york city so i have no notion of change over time and as you know if anybody who knows me they know that i think time is as important as geography um, otherwise, you're just kind of getting a snapshot in time and you don't know if you're at a uptrend, a, you know, on a downtrend, a historic high or historic low. So I don't even know how a portal like that will work out, you know, when when the curve starts going down. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are some other applications that have built some some more uh, sophisticated tooling around it, even if it's not exactly there. Um, the health map uh, dashboard, healthmap.org, they did. uh build time encoded data into it. And so you have a timeline slider at the bottom and you can kind of watch how, th how, the, how the disease spread. Um, and you have a little bit more client side interactivity in terms of mousing over things and, and scrolling over and getting data fed back to you. Um, so there are, there, the tooling is out there. It's a question of whether it can all be brought together. Yeah, Health Map is a great one, Josh. Marie, what dashboards have you been looking to to get your information? So one of my favorite go to uh, dashboards in the morning is the New York Times. And they have done a fantastic job in creating maps and graphics uh, beginning in Wuhan and going now to where we're at this global pandemic stage. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to Derek Watkins, the graphic editor there. He's been and his team incredibly creative. Um, it's a site that is um, interactive with the client in that the viewer can go and, and drill down into county level data and see changes. They've um, developed some innovative graphics to show uh, the intensity of increase of or decrease in uh, new infections. And um, um, they do show change over time, which I think is really important. So um, they have stepped up in this time where information is so important and can save lives and produce some really powerful tools. Well, and one other, other than, I mean, just some beautiful design and it, it just speaks to, it helps that, you know, that Derek is a geographer and it shows across all of their stuff um, in terms of the cartographic presentation. But from a technological perspective, one of the things they've, they've deployed here is 
uh, web maps have oftentimes only been able to use uh, a, a map projection called Web Mercator, and this gets into more cartographic nerdery. But um, <laughs> are you getting nerdy on us here, John? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try just a bit because I was super excited to see that uh, using the new Mapbox technology, they were able to actually show these maps in a, an appropriate global projection, and this is an important thing for. Um, you know, being able to represent spatial patterns more realistically than we've been able to do with the previous iterations of technology. So a, a nice little detail to see there from the cartographic side. And guys, uh, you would expect the New York Times could do something cool like this, but let us recognize the work of a high school student in Washington State, Abby Schiffman, who created a killer page that people are going to um, that has, is really well designed. He's scraping data from um, state and local um, health officials. Um, he's going using the CDC data. It's a great design. Not only does it show numbers of infections and deaths, but it's also showing people recovered by various geographies and hospitalization levels. Um, mm. So who would have thought even 10 or 15 years ago, somebody uh, in their basement could produce such a beautiful um, uh, dashboard. And it does have a mapping component to it as well. So shout out to Avi. Well, I think one of the cool things, Marie, you pointed out about Avi was uh, that, that uh, he was inspired back in December, you know, way before the wheels of public bureaucracy started turning an individual inspired to action could actually grab the technologies off the shelf and do something that that everyone, you know, that can inform everybody on the planet. So I think that's an amazing, you know, revolution in technology itself. Agreed. And pretty impressive that the basement in question is the basement of a high schooler. I wish that I had thought of that when I was in high school. All right, guys. So I want to turn now to talk about satellite imagery. We're all pretty familiar with its uses on Google Earth, but can you guys tell us how some analysts have been using the imagery to monitor movement and showing other things during the coronavirus outbreak? So the tricky thing about coronavirus, it is invisible. And how the irony is that a satellite imagery can make the invisible visible. And here's how. Uh, people find before and after images irresistible. And everyone can relate to them. Whether it's you gained a lot of weight and lost a lot of weight, or the house was a heap and now it's beautiful. In this case, we're looking at images of familiar places. Maybe it's Tokyo Disneyland, or Mecca, or Milan's Cathedral. And to see images from space that show densely packed areas to virtually empty ones begins to illustrate how this pandemic is changing daily lives. And then they even have used, uh, in this case, Maxar has been very creative in using these before and after images. Um, they showed Salt Lake City rental car parking lots. In February, these lots had several cars in them, but they were pretty empty. But by March, these rental car parking lots are packed with cars because nobody is renting cars anymore. And so these images can also be used to develop analytics and not just uh, provide an easily understandable illustration. Yeah, no, and you go from Maxar that's, you know, showing these great before and afters 
and you have another company out there, Planet Labs, that's imaging the Earth once a day, albeit at a, a, a somewhat more uh, lower resolution. But you know, then you can start understanding day by day, like the day before the quarantine was called versus the day after the quarantine was called. How many days did it take for all the traffic to fall off after the quarantine was called? So I mean, the things we can do now uh, that were unimaginable a decade ago are, are kind of amazing. Um, yeah. And that's with our eyes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've got these companies that are kind of the, the satellite imagery providers, the people who have the satellites in space who are taking pictures. And, and they're also, from an industry perspective, we're seeing that the people who take the pictures are also doing the analytics. But we are also seeing the development of a whole new tier of companies that are focused on the analytics specifically. And the combination of these of lots and lots of imagery and the development of machine learning algorithms, companies like Orbital Insight and Descartes um, have really turned this power of analysis on this massive amount of information to to look at modeling economic activity. Now we can kind of think now like, oh, it's just going to be everywhere. It is going to be everywhere, but we now do have the precision to actually measure over time what everywhere means. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of, what kind of details and the granularity of the information that washes out from all of this analysis. And this is the new world yeah. we're living in. We're going to, this capacity is now here and it's only going to get bigger as more and more imagery providers put birds in space. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, there's some investors out there right now using that kind of analysis to figure out what stocks to short, what companies are in what states, where demand will or will not rebound. I mean, it's, it's a whole new day. Absolutely. So satellite imagery is something we're all kind of familiar with, but another thing that's cropping up and appearing in a lot of maps is telemetry data. And that might be something some of our listeners are a little less familiar with. Telemetry is comprised of remotely sensed data points, often pings from cell phones that can measure and monitor movement across space. Josh, did I do okay with that definition? Could you provide some more context in terms of what we've been seeing using telemetry during COVID-19? Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty reasonable definition. I mean, um, I think what this, the applications we'll talk about here have maybe shown to people is how pervasive this data actually is. And so if you don't work in this industry and all of a sudden, you know, you've probably seen telemetry data when you get on Google Maps, you know, like, what's the traffic like on the highway? Well, that's because they're measuring and aggregating all of the cell phone data and turning that into flow information to displaying that back to you. So two things have, have really, you know, popped up in, in the COVID case so that the worth mentioning, super interesting. The first is a social distancing scoreboard. And it was this idea of using the cell phone data, using the telemetry data, showing which areas of the country where people were not moving. Were they in fact like sheltering at home or self quarantining? And what are the spatial patterns involved? And it was aggregated at the state level and now you're starting to see it down at the county level. Um, but the other one that was just visually stunning and, and if, if listeners haven't had an opportunity to go and, and see the little video, I recommend you, you go and, and look at it. Um, another company uh, was able to use really fine-grained telemetry data to go in and look at a beach in Florida over a, a couple of specific days to highlight that area and then to track forward where those phones went in the week following. And when all the spring breakers essentially went home, where did they go? Um, and there's just a granularity and precision to that data that will stun you, even if you are familiar with, with uh, this idea of telemetry and these third third uh, party kind of data marketers. But um, it it's 
it changes how you think about what's possible. Absolutely. Um, we have never seen it used so much as we're seeing today in other countries. Germany, South Korea, China are using telemetry to, to track the spread of this disease. Yeah, no, I saw that on your Twitter feed, Josh. I mean, that's uh, kind of disturbing stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, in terms of uh, you know, where it, I think the video only had two blocks of Fort Lauderdale Beach that the guy lassoed. And then just those handsets alone, not the people they infected, right? Because you don't know that off the of telemetry data, but just where those handsets went in the following week across the country is truly disturbing. So you just assume a handful, you know, one person infected in that two block stretch of Fort Lauderdale, what could have happened in terms of the contact model? You know, what people uh, may not be following in Korea, one of the best ways South Korea has been combating this is with a biosurveillance apparatus where they test aggressively and they tie your testing results to your cell phone, um, you know, uh, SSID, you, you know, your, your, the, the, the designator for your cell phone. And then they can follow the, the healthy people and the sick people and see if you came in contact. Then they'll go find you and say, did you know you, you know, came in contact with a sick person? Um, and of course, they didn't know because, as Marie said, it's invisible. Um, but this has been coming up. This is no longer in the realm of geo geeks. I mean, this has come up in uh, the lawfare blog, like the lawyers and national security people are really kind of freaked out about this, trying to figure out how will location surveillance help counter COVID-19, but then how might it as a capability be used for um, uh, unethical uh, or illegal or, or problematic uh, uh, applications in the future? Um, AGS, I think Katie actually just had, uh, ran a, a podcast with the AGS's Ethical Geo Fellows for some great discussion on this topic. Um, and but but beyond us geo nerds, right? It's showing up in the New York Times just the other day um, uh, in in another great article. So I think you know th this telemetry stuff is the cat's out of the bag, and you know we're we're going to have to start contending with what it means post COVID nineteen. Yeah, exactly. no, I, I mean, it's just interesting what the facial distribution of governments and society's relationships to privacy, because it's the same set of technologies, and it's going to be incredibly interesting to watch where it gets implemented and where it doesn't and why and how. Um, and I think we're struggling with it in a way in America that there's going to be some, uh, you know, regimes that, that are probably not going to struggle with it um, in the same way that we are. It's going to be interesting to watch how it plays out. For sure. The global landscape and data privacy is, is set to change for sure. I think it's Europe kind of struggles with similar topics um, and, and in the United States where we turn is anybody's question. So if anyone's interested in checking out that Ethical Geo podcast, we also have that on our website. But I want to move on to um, another use of geospatial tools during COVID, the Internet of Things. Uh, that's recently emerged as a buzzword to describe kind of interconnected technical systems that are appearing in all parts of our lives, from our homes with Alexa and, and Google systems to smart cities and CCTV cameras everywhere. Um, can you guys chat a little bit about how geospatial tech has integrated into the Internet of Things during the pandemic? Well, I tell you, I was blown away learning just yesterday about smart thermometers. Uh, there's a company called Kinsa, and they have about a million of these thermometers in circulation, and they've had them for about a decade. Um, and they're Bluetooth to your phone, so that when you, you take your temperature, it pushes the data out. 
and they have created what they call a weather health map. They're usually able to predict when a flu outbreak is going to happen faster than the CDC because of this live you know, pushed out data. And um, these smart thermometers actually might be really helpful to us in uh, understanding the hot spots of COVID-19, something that um, I was very surprised when I learned existed. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even, it's not just thermometers you put in your mouth anymore, right? Because you have these heat surveillance cameras out there that are using infrared to see somebody who, you know, looks like they have an elevated body temperature. I mean, mm -hmm. how creepy is that, right? It's not something that you're choosing to put in. You bought it, you went to CVS, you bought it, and you put it in your mouth and configured it for your data to flow. But these are people from standoff distances, and may not even be a person, it could just be kind of built into the, the city's landscape, and can see that, oh, you know, X number of people with elevated body temperatures walk down this street. So that's really kind of changing, <laughs> changing right. the game, I think. It's, it's a whole new definition of who's a hottie. In the <laughs> oh, God. There you go. Yeah. But I mean, I think Josh, you were pointing out to me uh, the enforcement stuff. So on a, the in South Korea, right? I mean, I, I agree with the the privacy landscape is going to change quite a bit. But I, I'm actually taken uh, with the kind of level of responsibility and soberness with which the South Koreans have um, used this telemetry data to help enforce. And they've also used CCTV, right? Closed, uh, 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 closed circuit TV, street cameras to be able to say, wait, somebody just walked down that street that nobody's supposed to be walking down. And they, they have the geolocation, they know the look angle. Um, and then they can cross uh, correlate that data maybe with telemetry or some other kind of information. So, you know, it's there's a lot of quote unquote things that are gonna be out there uh, that can kind of observe the world around us that I think uh, will feed into a long-term uh, counter-pandemic infrastructure. Just hope it doesn't like counter all of our constitutional rights in the uh, in the offing. Well, yeah, I mean, I, if you remember the first Batman that Christopher Nolan made with Christian Bale as Batman, where, you know, he had the the cell phone network that could ping everything and he could see everything that was happening everywhere. And Morgan Freeman was like, no, it's too much. It's too powerful. And he, and he destroyed it at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the movie. Right. The question is we build right. this bio surveillance thing. Cause we make, if we make decisions under this kind of pressure and build the perfect bio surveillance toolkit, what does that mean when it just becomes a surveillance toolkit and who owns it? That's exactly you right. Know? And what we're seeing in the United States with this telemetry stuff is, you agreed when you turned on your phone and agreed to all those terms and conditions that you would play in this game. And did you know that that's what you were doing? And did you know that people can go out and buy that data? Um, there's just so many privacy tiers to this that, that honestly, I hope that this will shine a light on a, a lot of discussions that we should be having. But the big question is, could we put Morgan Freeman in charge? I mean, <laughs> that might be a very comforting thing. I think really soothing for a lot of people. <laughs> The voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, the last subject I want to turn to is the use of crowdsourcing and open source mapping projects that are started in response to the outbreak. During times of crisis, I think most everyone wants to lend a hand to help the greater good, and geographers are no different. So there are a lot of exciting projects going on being led by geographers that are helping organize people and report data to the public. What are some of the best that you've seen, Marie? Well, there has been a field of humanitarian or crisis mapping that has been growing for the last 15, 20 years using crowdsource 
um, information. Um, the Haiti earthquake was a real coming of age moment for that um, ability to pull in different data and have people remotely create maps that uh, could help rescue people in, in dire situations. What's happening now um, with uh, some of our partners at AGS, like Youth Mappers and the people at OpenStreetMap and Mapillary, is that um, they are adding information to um, the map, uh, especially attribute data, so that um, you could click on a clinic and know the hours or new testing sites um, that um, vary, and are, it's a changing geography, not just in developed countries, but in developing countries. And especially with organizations like Youth Mappers that have uh, young people adding to the map in all over Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Latin America, um, there's a lot of really good activities people can do um, and from their homes safely uh, to provide information so that others will know where to go um, if they need assistance. So um, others will reference a number of these places and uh, sites on the after the podcast, but take a look at them if you're looking for some mapping activities while you have time on your hands. Yeah, yeah avoid I, cabin fever and, and kind of jump <laughs> in and stuff to the map. That's right. Well, it, it, the, the other fascinating element of this is, you know, crowdsource mapping has been just part of the standard toolkit for 10 years now. And most of the times we see a disaster happens and it happened in a place where there wasn't great foundation data. And so people have jumped into map buildings and roads and, and things that you can see from satellite imagery. As the same pandemic is, is affecting everywhere, the data needs are different. And it's fascinating to me to watch how, you know, the kinds of points, what would be called POI or points of interest data that is typically a market driven um, data collection effort in the developed world, which is like, how, where's the CVS? How, what, are, what are its hours? What does it have? And the fact that that is the information that's actually needed in many places in the world where, there, where the data, the foundation data is already really good. And so you're seeing this spectrum of mapping activities from we need to actually collect where the hospital is to we need to collect uh, this kind of data that can't be seen by a satellite. It's got to be done from the ground um, either in person or some of the stuff from Mapillary where, you know, the ground-based um, imagery at least allows you to, to get it at, at business names and those kinds of things that you can see only from the ground. So it's a, it's a new dynamic brought into the crowdsourcing landscape. Yeah, no, and, and to add to that, Josh, I mean, you know, you go online and you want to know if something's at your local CVS. And of course, they don't tell you, um, you know, maybe they have an online store and you can have it delivered. But I mean, people need to know if there's toilet paper down the street without unnecessarily getting out of their house and exposing themselves to risk. Here in D.C., um, there's an app and there's probably a bunch of these apps around the country. They created a Our Street Supplies um, and you can actually know that you know, toilet paper was just delivered down the street um, because it's people in the community that are, are helping post that. Maybe the business people themselves are posting that. But, you know, I think this is one of these things that could be a, a real uh, material shift that, that post-COVID-19, all of a sudden, we're going to have much better visibility into our supply chains that are out there um, mm -hmm. that we haven't had before. And, you know, shout out to uh, a another kind of company. Um, Spatial Networks has Fulcrum app which many, many companies and, and uh, organizations use for field data collection. 
um, but they've uh, uh, put their app out for COVID-19 data collection also. So these kind of apps that you can have your own private managed crowd or team that goes out and, and collects certain sets of data, I think is again, something we simply didn't have, you know, last time we had a pandemic. So, and these are all, these are all great, you know, it, uh, reducing the risk that you have as a citizen or allowing people, you know, with a real day job to, to collect that data rapidly and make it broadly available, I think is a real revolution. Yeah, if I maybe jump in with one other thing, when you're talking, it reminded me that uh, FEMA's crowdsourcing group had been talking with Google. Um, you know, again, it's kind of telemetry data. You know, Google is collecting all these pings from all these Android devices. And so one of the things that FEMA had always worried about more, more in natural disasters where you lose power is when are businesses open. And you could actually start to see that from the Google data. Um, you know, not just the credit card companies, are they processing transactions, but are people aggregating at the diner? That might mean the diner is open kind of thing, right? And you start to pair that up with, is the grocery store open and are people reporting that certain things are there? Your visibility into the supply chain, it just starts to increase dramatically. Oh, for sure. Well, thanks everybody. I think that's all the time we have today, but I wanna thank you all for getting us up to speed on the work of geographers across the country. I mean, we've been seeing it everywhere, but it's really great to go in and talk about the specifics of really what everybody's doing on the ground. So just for our listeners, again, if you're interested in learning more about any of the tools that we discussed today, we have a resource guide that's gonna be attached here to the podcast on SoundCloud or on our website at americangeo.org. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at American Geo and tune in to our next installment of the American Geographical Society podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Katie. Katie. Thanks, Katie. That was fun.